All right, so Dr. Glenfeder is actually a senior research scholar with ISGAP. He joined us recently. Uh, Glenn finished his doctorate degree recently at the University of Paris, Paris 4 at the Sorbonne, in the Department of Philosophy. And he specializes in political philosophy, and he wrote his dissertation comparing uh, Tocqueville and Nietzsche on issues of democracy and the strength of democracy in the face of reactionary social movements, which Glenn will, will speak to. Uh, Glenn also has a master's degree from Ecole um, des Hautes Etudes et Sciences Sociales and the University of Chicago. He taught at the Washington Center in Washington, D.C., and also Paris in France. He's published wi widely on issues of anti-Semitism as well on issues of democracy and its criticisms spanning from Nietzsche to radical Islamist ideology. He also worked at several think tanks in the United States, including NGOs, including the investigative uh, project on terrorism, the Israel Project, the Joint, the Joint Distribution Committee, and the Shalem Center in Israel. And he's also, through his work on issues of anti-Semitism and terrorism, briefed U.S. government officials and law enforcement agencies on contemporary uh, national security issues. So Glenn is based in Paris. And as some of you may know, I don't know if I've been here since uh, then, but in early December, we opened the first ever research uh, studies program at a French university on anti-Semitism. So we're at the CNRS in Sorbonne, and, Be uh, and Glenn is playing an integral role in ISGAP's work in France and our developments in Europe. We're now in Italy, uh, Rome, Paris, and we're opening a program in Oxford in the summer. So Glenn, thanks for being here. And, uh, Thank you, Charles, for that kind introduction, and again, thank you all for coming tonight. I know it, <clears throat> it's not the most hospitable of environment, of environments outside, so <clears throat> we've got the diehards here, and that's, uh, that's a good sign. So I've been living in France for on and off for over 15 years, <clears throat> and I'd like to tell you a little bit about my reflections on what's going on there and how it fits into larger, the larger picture. Um, and I'm going to focus, it's, it's a bit of an historical lecture, we're going to focus on exile, the idea of exodus, exile, um, and, and what that, what, what's happening today in France regarding the Jewish community in particular. Um, we're witnessing today, I believe, an event of historic proportions in France, which is the exile of its Jewish community. That doesn't mean full exile. It's, right now it's a partial exile. Nobody knows exactly how far it's going to go, but the numbers are very significant already. Uh, last year alone, approximately 7,000 of the 600,000 Jews in France left just for Israel. This is not including Jews that came here to Canada, to the United States, places where they might not necessarily get a visa, but Israel They've certainly gone in large numbers. The year before, it was at 3,400, so the, no the numbers have doubled. And they're set to double again, according to Sharansky, head of the um, Jewish Agency. They're estimating between 15 and 20,000 are going to leave uh, this year alone. Um, <clears throat> and actually, those estimates were before the attacks. So it might even be higher than that. Uh, and Israel, of course, is preparing for this massive aliyah, which, of course, many of you know what this means, this return 
to Israel. Um, this is the largest aliyah since um, uh, this aliyah is, is it's the first time that the French aliyah is larger than the American aliyah in history. Um, usually the Americans take the cake for the amount of Jews that are going to Israel and this time for the first time France has slid into first place. Um, <clears throat> so if this happens I think we really need to understand what this means historically. Basically, the Jews of France who arrived more or less in 70 CE after the destruction of the Second Temple <laughs> will be gone. Um, if this occurs, the Jews of France who started one of the most important Talmudic schools to Rashi will have left. The Jews of France who gave birth to Alfred Dreyfus, who refused to be wrongly accused, and in turn, as we know, inspired Herzl's vision of Zionism, will have left. The largest Jewish community in Europe will have left Professor, Europe. Yes? Interrupt. The, uh, the history of the Jews of France actually goes much further back. Yeah, we're gonna go, we're gonna go all the way back. Let's, let's save it to the end. We're gonna go, I promise you, in fact, this is an historic lecture. So we're going to go all the way back to the Middle Ages very soon. No, so no, no. Yeah. Oh, you mean, you mean in, in France? In France, when Julius Caesar, who was also a Ohed Yisrael, as we say, when he conducted his campaigns in Gaul, which yeah. wasn't a part of the Romans, he was astonished to find a huge, large Jewish community in mm -hmm. Gaul. And yes, and we're going to talk about that. Right. So to move onward, <clears throat> to be to move onward, after the attacks in January, this issue, because I want to talk a lot about the contemporary context as well. In fact, I want to focus on not Gaul, but on what's happening now today. But in order to do that, we have to understand a little bit about what what happened in the past. We're not going to go as far back as Julius Caesar, uh, but we will talk a little bit about the Middle Ages. Um, the January attacks have brought some dialogue into, um, about the exile into sig a significant debate, but it's unclear whether this is a kind of knee-jerk reaction or it's going to result in a permanent change in France. Um, before the attacks, after 7,000 Jews left in one year alone, the nation of Le Droit de l'Homme, which publicly admitted in 1995, under Chirac, an inescapable guilt for its collaboration with the Nazis was silent, more or less, regarding this issue. I live there, I watch the news, I talk with people, I'm involved in, you know, in politics and social issues. There was a, a large silence before the attacks. Even now, it's already dying down again. There were no special government programs, really, that were created to help protect the Jewish community beyond its own laws, and I'll talk a little bit about why <clears throat> that's so. Um, the, and the, there was no real uproar. The non-Jews didn't you know, accuse the Jews of lack of patriotism, and the Jews didn't create some scandalous jacuzzi-like drama and leave you know, in a huff and a puff. There was a, lot of, there was a relative silence <coughs> regarding this exile, which struck me very much so given the history of exile in, in France and the emancipation of, of Jews and, and ultimate, um, one, would, one thought, victory of, 
of, of, of rights, human rights in France among all different types of communities. Um, so in a sense, the Jewish community is leaving France and France is letting them go routinely as, a, as if they have done so before because in fact they have done so before, at least two times before. This is the third exile. Now when I say the third exile, we're going to start with the Middle Ages quickly. Uh, we're just going to scan over it, but basically during the Middle Ages there were a series of exiles in France. Um, many of them were based on classic injustices, forced conversions, blood libel, usury was a big one, um, and goods were seized, property was stolen, and often murders uh, were, were committed. Um, the major exiles happened in 1009. Robert the Pious was one of the few kings who actually did it in the name of the church and forced either conversion or death. But what ultimately sealed the fate of the Jews, I believe, in the Middle Ages was the debts of the kingdom. Um, that's what sealed the fate because, as we know, Jews were forced to be, they didn't have a lot of choices regarding profession, so money lending was one of the few professions that they were able to legally um, exercise and so they had, uh, they were expelled often to win favors for forgiving debt and things like that. Um, in 1181 Philip Augustus arrested, seized and expelled almost every single Jew out of the kingdom. Um, the other major expulsion was in 1308, uh, 1306, Philip the Fair, Philip le Juste, which is of course a very ironic name. Um, he had a kind of bureau very bureaucratic centralized government in France, which could perhaps remind us a little bit of the Parti Socialiste today, <laughs> um, because, which is also very centralized bureaucratic and wasted a lot of money, I believe. But he, he ultimately had a government which was going bankrupt because because of the way it was structured, and he was, um, as a result, uh, started confiscating, auctioning off Jewish goods, arresting, imprisoning, and exiling Jews. They were, to, they were allowed to return in 1315, but were ultimately expelled again under Charles VI in 1394. So um, uh, the Jews of the Middle Ages were, their history was a history of, of many expulsions, or in some cases, major expulsions. There's also the Jews of the Provence, which was a whole separate, uh, which is not part of the kingdom, and they suffered the same fate of expulsion in 1498, um, which was enforced in 1500, and they were expelled. So that was the first, when I talk about the three exiles, that was the first major one that um, I think is very significant. The second one was, of course, World War II. Now, remember, 1789-1790, Jews, after the French Revolution, were given full citizenship rights. They were the first in Europe to, to gain this. So this was a historic uh, victory for, for Jews and you know, generally would, could be perceived as a very good sign. Uh, Anti-Semitism anti persisted, but you know, um, after the Dreyfus Affair and um, the, you know, in, in, in the winning of, of citizenship uh, after the revolution, there seemed to be an idea that the exiles of the Middle Ages were something of the past this was over. <clears throat> now, the Jews during the World War II were very patriotic citizens. They were actually enlisting much higher numbers than even uh, French citizens, including foreign, the foreign Jews, which are important to mention because those are the ones that were ultimately um, 
that were ultimately ex exiled, <coughs> put um, put on trains. To, um, eventually, they were originally put in internment camps, and eventually uh, put on trains to um, the concentration camps in Poland. Now, just very briefly, Mar you know, Marshal Petain in June 22, 1940, signed an armistice after France was invaded only in May, June of 1940, so it didn't last very long. Um, so they folded relatively quickly and quickly started, um, um, they originally, they, they very quickly repealed the Marshall Doe Act, which punished, def which punished defamation in the press, uh, giving rise to the worst forms of anti-Semitism. In October the same year, on its own initiative, the Vichy government enacted the Statue des Juifs, which defined Jews by race, instituting widespread discriminatory measures, including barring Jews from uh, professions and forcing them to register and all that stuff. So, and then, of course, that same month, as we know, they were, the, all the foreign Jews that they could get were interned. Uh, so in many cases, uh, my, my main point is that the Vichy authorities actually surpassed the demands of the Germans. Um, they were um, often, uh, they were often uh, exceeding the demands. They sent more Jews than the Germans could even process once they started sending them to the camps. And in total, just so we don't forget the numbers in France, around 75,720 Jews were deported and only 2,500 came back. So this was the second major exile. Now the third exile <coughs> is very different from the first exile, which is very different from the second exile. This exile is a, you can say, semi-voluntary exile. I don't want to use the word completely voluntary because some Jews who wear kippahs on their heads and walk around Paris or other cities in France don't feel that their decision is fully uh, voluntary. Um, just a quick anecdote. When I was in a synagogue in my own hometown, <coughs> I mean, adopted hometown in France, um, the the president of the community on Yom Kippur sat, you know, stood up and he said, look, I'm going to be very brief. I have two messages for you. The first is, and this is, you know, a spiritual holiday, and he didn't talk about spirituality or even about uh, Judaism per se. He simply said two things. He said, uh, <clears throat> the security situation is very bad. Make sure you walk around in groups and pairs and watch your back, basically. And the second was, learn Hebrew. Uh, not for when we leave, but for, not for if we leave, but for when. So I was with a Swiss friend who was quite shocked. He said in Switzerland this would never, this would be offensive. But here this was basically a decision that was made. Um, and that's, that's a, a huge, I think that's a huge, um, that's a huge thing that we have to realize that many have made this decision to leave already. They're just preparing. Now they're in the preparation stage. In my <clears throat> town where I live, there's something like 20 different ulpan courses all over the place. And it's only maybe 15% Jewish. So there is a huge mobilization, and I, you know, and Israel is preparing for this. Now, there are two sources to the anti-Semitism in France. Um, I'm going to go over them very briefly. Uh, the first is young, disaffected youth. They're largely... Muslim youth, they're largely in the suburbs of Paris and other major cities, and they've adopted a kind of political Islam or Islamism. You know, there's a lot of argument about, we're not going to get too semantic tonight, I hope. 
because um, I prefer to. Yes, it's Canada. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. So I'm not used to being politically correct because in Canada, because even in France, you can't. Um, you can basically say uh, which what you want. But uh, I, I am American by origin, so I'm, I'm trained in some of the, you know, some of the more politically correct environments. <coughs> Uh, in the United States. Uh, but anyhow, so we have the, the radical Islamists on the one hand, and on the other, a mix of the extreme left with the extreme right with a little dash of radical Islam to kind of make it spicy and interesting. And that's Dieudonné, which is a name I can't even pronounce because his name means, you know, God-given. Yeah. So my friends and I call him Diabdoné instead of Dieudonné. <laughs> So Diabdoné says he's a kind of comedian, but he, I, you know, he's really a kind of racist that... Kind of? Kind of, yeah. More than kind of. So he mocks the Football Shoah... Like. What's that? The football is like. Yeah. Uh, he's, you know, very controversial figure in, in France today. He has tens of thousands of followers, social media, website. He, of course, popularized the, you know, reverse Nazi salute, which calls the Canel and is influenced by a guy by the name of Alain Sorel, who was a Marxist and then became... He was a communist, and then he was—he turned to the far right. Whatever you know was the most extreme, he kind of embraced. Um, and it's important to note that he is involved in politics. He did establish a political party, Dieudonné, called the Equality and Reconciliation. Um, and he is um, a convert to Islam, who identifies with the radical version of Islam. In a 2011 interview, which I'd be happy to send anyone here. He calls on French Christians to convert to Islam. <laughs> so it's important to understand where he's coming from. No one can deny these things because uh, he said them himself. Uh, and um, in terms of the French support of Dieudonné, there was a survey on January 8th, so just last month, uh, that said around 16% of French have a favorable opinion of him. So if you do the math, that's that would turn out to be around 10 million people. Um, so it, within the Jewish community, basically, there's a lot of tension right now. And there's a kind of debate that's emerging as to what, <clears throat> what to do. You have, on the one hand, the CRIF, uh, which is one of the main Jewish organizations, and the new head rabbi of France who said, quote, France is our language, our dream, our hope for the future. So they're basically saying, stick around, let's see what happens, things might get better. Um, okay, that was a very abbreviated uh, version of the French view, but they have invested in the community and they want the community to try to tough it out and see if things could change. And then you have Israelis like Netanyahu, who said, quote, to all the Jews of France, all the Jews of Europe, I would like to say that Israel is not just the place in whose direction you pray, the state of Israel is your home. And this became a bit controversial. Uh, Hollande didn't really like this, and so on. So, you know, when Jews say next year in Jerusalem, for many French Jews, they really mean this, uh, literally, this year. And, you know, Netanyahu and Lieberman and Moshe Yalon, they're all waiting with open arms, basically. So uh, this is the dilemma, the crossroad that the Jewish community is at right now in France. And I think if we zoom out a little and just think about the decision of a French Jew to leave France and move to Israel, it's really quite astounding. Because when you think about it, you look at France, I'm a, I call myself now a recovering Francophile. Um, <clears throat> I've been there for many years and you know, I love the country, but also have a lot of misgivings, of course. 
if you look at France, a country, a, you know, a relatively wealthy country, six, you know, weeks of vacation per year, fine cuisine, beautiful 19th century architecture uh, in Paris and other cities, um, you know, the virtues of France, you weigh those, and, um, you know, the, the lifestyle that, that France can afford versus Israel, which is a miraculous country, but surrounded by uh, countries, uh, enemies that want to destroy it, uh, has serious economic problems, fiercely competitive economy, and um, you know military obligations are you know it, military uh, mandatory inscription in the military for men and women. Um, it's uh, it's 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 I think astounding that so many French are leaving. There must be something spiritual and physical that's going on to the French community that enables them to give all of that up and move, you know, the free healthcare, the free education, the six weeks, the whole package, and move to a country where life is, uh, let's say, if any of you have ever tried to build a life there, not, not so easy to build a life there, despite the miraculous nature of the country. And I think it's ironic that the country that, you know, produced Montesquieu, created separation of powers, the declaration of the droit d'homme, and laid the foundation of human rights, is now losing uh, one of its most ancient communities. Um, so why, you know, uh, the, the final part of my talk, we'll talk about why, why this is happening. Uh, what are the reasons, the explanations for why, why, the, why Jews are leaving France? And I think it's an, you know, I, I just spoke to someone in physics, we have kind of interdisciplinary crowd here, and that's a good thing because this is really an interdisciplinary uh, topic. Um, I think I see historical, political, sociological, psychological, and philosophic reasons for why this is happening. And I'll just briefly tell you a few of my highlights, and then you can tell me <coughs> if you agree or if you think um, it's completely um, nuts what I'm saying. Uh, historically, you have to understand that France right now is around 70% Sephardic. Uh, they're arriving from, you know, Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, a lot of them in the 1950s. And um, a lot of them are fleeing, um, already fled countries that um, became inhospitable to them. My own family on my brother's side is Tunisian and they left a very comfortable life in Tunisia to build um, to, a, uh, to, a, to a life in Salcel and living in a kind of what's called the Ashalem, which is a kind of, almost like a project. Um, it's not the same. Uh, and they, you know, they're constantly talking about their life in Tunisia, that they, they had wealthy, you know, they were wealthy, they had a marble factory. So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of emphasis, I think, these days on that exile, <coughs> the exile of the Jewish Sephardim from North Africa to something that's very important, I think, to study and to understand. I don't want to go into all the details, but we know in Tunisia they fled after the Six-Day War, in Morocco as well, in, in, Al in Algeria. A lot of these countries, they fled after different events, especially that happened within Israel. And I believe there's a kind of historic trauma because of Max exile and because of loss of property. And a lot of these people um, are seeing the same things happening again in France. So they're living in Salcelle in the northern suburbs where they've become now a minority. And they're seeing that history is uh, repeating itself uh, once again. 
Um, and they're also looking at Israel, especially the young types, and they're seeing this startup nation. They're seeing, you know, they're strongly Zionistic, most of the, the vast majority of Sephardim in uh, Israel, I'm sorry, in France. And so they, they used to have a spiritual attachment to Israel. And then, of course, you have the Ashkenazi, which around 20, 25%, <clears throat> something like this, who, of course, also carry a trauma from World War II. And, um, you know, in Paris and many other French cities, they, I think they've done a decent job at memorializing this, this genocide um, <clears throat> during World War II. And so, you know, you live within this memory. And then, um, and then when you see... Uh, you know, Jews, uh, you know, over 400 uh, anti-Semitic acts um, last year alone. Um, I think that people um, have a kind of collective memory that they've helped keep alive through all of these efforts, and they see history repeating itself on a different scale, granted, in a different way, granted, but nonetheless, um, they feel uh, you cannot today walk around with a keep on your head in Paris, and that's something that... Um, would have probably been inconceivable uh, if you were to tell someone who had never really um, lived in France uh, before. So I think that this is a major, a major shift. Now, politically, uh, the 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 issue is that the French have a kind of a republican model. It's very different from the multiculturalist model that uh, happened in parts of Canada and the U.S. Um, it's not a salad bowl or a melting pot. I like to compare it more like a giant camembert because <laughs> it's basically the same ingredient. You're either French or you're nothing. And, you know, my analogy is this, you know, camembert is, is starting to stink a little bit. It's getting expired, perhaps. Um, this, is, this, is, this is an issue. It's a debate when the expiration date is. But there's something stinky going on. Um, <clears throat> And uh, what is collapsing exactly within this Republican model? Um, remember, you know, for France declared itself in 1905 as a laic, as a secular country. So right away, religion is kind of pushed into the private sphere. Um, and um, uh, there's, so there's not, um, when there are problems uh, taxed against Jews and things like that, <coughs> the French look at this as not an attack against the community, but an attack against a citizen, a French citizen. And so there hasn't been really concerted efforts to, um, to you know, customize to, to the community uh, as a whole. There are also very soft judicial penalties in France. Um, you know, they don't, obviously there's no death penalty, which is great, but there's no um, life in prison. It's really 40 years maximum, and they're often radicalized in prison. There are also many intelligence flaws, which um, we can go into later if you're really interested. Since I have a background in counterterrorism, I can tell you what happened with Kulabali and, um, and uh, Kwachi, the Kwachi brothers, if you're interested. Um, and generally, there's a, as a result of this, there's an indifference among many non-French, uh, non-Jewish French, to um, to the plight of Jews in France. And this is, I think, illustrated with the many different incidents that happened over the years from Ilan Halimi to uh, the incident in Toulouse and um, by Mohammed, you know, Mohammed Marat. These were all um, terrorist attacks where people uh, didn't rise up and say, je suis Ilan, je suis Miriam, je suis Rabbi Sander. Uh, these were incidents that basically came and went and there were no major concerted 
rallies like we saw in early January to um, side and defend um, you know their their Jewish um, you know brothers and sisters and fellow citizens. Um, so the final uh, the final set of reasons or causes which I think we have to remember are sociological reasons. Uh, what are the reasons why the French feel more at home in Israel than in France? Um, I think one of the main reasons is that simply Jewish identity in France today is becoming impossible, and I use the word identity purposefully, that's a very abstract word, but when you look at anyone from a religious Jew who wears a kippah to a completely secular Zionist type Jew, um, in both instances it's almost um, inconceivable that you can um, go out in public and have your views be respected by your fellow, your fellow citizens and visitors. Uh, so this is this is a major problem. Uh, I also think that the especially the younger types look at Israel as a kind of startup nation and see France, which is a highly regulated economy, as no longer really offering the kinds of economic opportunities. Um, there's also two other final reasons, and they're sociological reasons. One is that um, many of the radicals in France look at Jews as kind of these very wealthy, powerful types. An old stereotype which persists in France today. The couple that was attacked, uh, you probably heard in Crete, um, there was a couple that was attacked, their apartment was broken into, they, they got their bank cards and they didn't really get much money out of them because Crete is not the wealthiest neighborhood and their bank accounts didn't really have much, but they were somehow under the assumption that because they had a mezuzah on their door, that these people must be loaded. Um, and it's this ancient stereotype, Lan Halimi too, they were trying to, they said, of course they were seething anti-Semites, but they were also interested in ransom money. Because they thought the Jewish community, they called the rabbi, they were trying to extort money out of the Jewish community, they thought, oh, you know, these are very wealthy people. And this, of course, leads to, this, this stereotype leads to, and there's actually a, a very poor Jewish community in large parts of France, so it's the total opposite. I mean, there are wealthy Jews as well, but there are entire northern suburbs that are extremely poor. Um, this leads to a kind of conspiracy theory, which leads to a kind of hate. And I don't think any lecture about this would be appropriate without a little, a little Jewish humor. So I'll tell you a very quick joke illustrating this point. Uh, a guy, Jewish guy, is reading a newspaper, this Arabic newspaper, every day. Every day he's reading the same Arabic newspaper and his friend comes up to him and says, you know, Moisha, why are you reading this Arabic newspaper every day? Why don't you read Haaretz or Times of Israel or some Israeli newspaper? Wouldn't that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't that be, interest you more? And he said, no, absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. When I read, you know, Haaretz and Times of Israel, I see the economy stinks, you know, our politicians are corrupt, uh, we're being, you know, surrounded by enemies, we're, we're being attacked left and right. But when I read, you know, the Arabic newspaper, I see that, you know, we're, we're, we're wealthy, we're taking over the banks, we're taking over the sciences, we're taking over basically everything, we're getting money, and it kind of, you know, lifts my morale a little bit. <laughs> so this is the kind of stereotype that is playing in some radical elements in France, which has really turned into violence, pure, raw violence against Jews who, um, who are not necessarily uh, living up to these, these stereotypes. Uh, 
And then finally, I think there's a general malaise in France, and it's really the only word abstract enough to describe what I want to say, because there's a political stagnation. Remember, Hollande had only 18% before the attacks. It was the lowest public approval rating in French history. After the attacks, for some reason, which uh, I still <laughs> don't understand, he shot up to 40%, and now it's going back down. I mean, there are reasons, uh, obviously. Uh, but um, people are generally disillusioned politically, economically, there's a lot of stagnation, and socially, there's a lot of tension. So for these reasons, Jews feel that, not just as Jews, but as kind of people who are trying to carve out lives, comfortable kind of you know, lives for themselves, that Israel might have, um, have, Israel might have a little bit more opportunity for them. So there are spiritual reasons that they move there, and there are even, uh, there are many other reasons. So just to conclude, I just want to make a very few, very, one or two very brief um, concluded remarks. I think that this exile, this third exile, is a kind of silent exile. Um, people are going um, to build their lives. They're focused, uh, maybe one of the reasons why it's silent is because the Jews are focused more on building their lives in Israel, and the French are focused more on solving the social, economic, and political problems that they're dealing with back at home and really don't care very much. Um, and I think that this also overlooks a kind of thousand-pound gorilla sitting in the corner of the room, which is the, that this exile indicates a fundamental social and political constructs which have been built in modernity, which uh, separate Jews from the situation in the Middle Ages, which are collapsing. And I'm not saying that the Jews are regressing back to the Middle Ages, but the fact that there's an exile in the 21st century means that there are certain fundamental things in France that simply have not changed. Um, it's an, an implicit and perhaps explicit avowal that republicanism in France, the hard-won victory of the French Revolution where citizens' rights were supposed to finally trump over other forms of identity, is collapsing. Thank you, Glenn. So I'm going to start off with a question. So after the, uh, the attack, where 17 people were, were murdered, <coughs> or more than 17 people and a police officer, there's been reports that there are um, thousands of French citizens either being trained in the Middle East or have returned. And I heard eight to 10,000 people have to be monitored. Yeah. So there's a real threat that continues on a daily basis. This is not just an abstract thing, but the society is under significant threat by murderers, mm -hmm. people committed to jihad, on the one hand. On the other hand, the academic environment, we created the first <coughs> program on anti-Semitism, and what was interesting in this process is that a very respected scholar said that when we approached them, said that this is not an issue in France, that there's no such issue. But one scholar, to his credit, an elderly man, we gave him material to read and he actually read it and he said, okay, I don't quite agree with you, but you can do the seminars and do the program. And he's now attending our events and he's pleased with what we're doing. So he was one of the first sort of mainstream scholars, not Jewish, to really accept that maybe there's an issue to be looked at, mm -hmm. maybe. Mm -hmm. So my question is, the Prime Minister, the government of France has been excellent in their rhetoric in the last month or so. Um, 
They're, they're naming radical political Islam as a problem. They're naming the cult of, je of death that jihadism is. Unlike some other politicians. Unlike uh, our neighbors to the south, for example, where the environment is really different. So now that the French government and the security forces are acknowledging openly that there's a serious threat, that anti-Semitism exists and it's intolerable, the French Prime Minister again today was very strong on, on issues of anti-Semitism and very clear. Now that the government is acknowledging it, now that you mentioned that it's a socialist government with centralized powers, where they can in fact affect policy substantially, do you see a shift, not just in the top, but is there something filtering down where there's an acknowledgement of anti-Semitism mm -hmm. in the general society? Number one and number two, how how is the Jewish community reacting? Are they is this going to speed up the exile, or is there right. resolve to stay and fight for democratic principles? Right. Well, I think there's definitely a shift. I mean, the the government rhetoric is is strong. Um, I think it's a little early to tell whether French citizens have simply woken up and said, "Oh, are not as close to sheep's clothing." What's that? The moderates are wolves and sheep's clothing. So we have a we have a question. Let's play the other question. I'm just curious, you said 7,000 families or people moved from France to Israel yeah. this year. Last year. What, last year. What's the success rate for these moves? Are these people, are they all 100% of them going to leave France permanently? Are they going to find a new life? If it doesn't work out, would they reconsider their decision? It's early, it's early to tell, you know, because it's only been a year. But there's less return than in the past. In the past, I have a lot of friends who have made two, three, I myself have made at least two attempts to live there. Um, and people will come back, but now I think that the French are going to think twice, the French Jews are going to think twice about coming back because the situation has got so bad that I think there's, uh, there's no turning back. And so I think the rates are going to go much lower in that they're going to stay. And there's enough of them now that if they can't find Israelis to marry because the culture is too different, they'll marry other French because you have a huge population. How is Quebec perceived as a destination, as an alternative? I think very lots strong. of French would love to live there, but there's the visa, you have to get the visa. <laughs> like the United States, you know, there are many people who would like They're to live French. Yeah, accommodating no, actually, French citizens. I actually think I've been reading reports that there are many French Jews that are coming here, and it's not really documented, and it's not a, a, a sexy story as the Israeli migration, but there's something yeah. happening in Quebec, in Florida, and in New York. There, there's a migration. Yeah. And then and another phenomenon that's interesting is many people are not officially migrating from France to Israel, but people are actually moving there, they're staying there, and they're working in France, and they, they literally ah. commute. And that's not being part of the migration, the official migration. So yeah. some people will come back, but I think there are more people there than we actually know. There's the budget airline that just started doing flights, you know, Paris, Tel Aviv, and you can get there for 100 euro a trip, so. Yes. I'd like to add to your panoply of, of enemies of Judaism. Two obvious ones that were left out. One atheist and the other one Christianity. In Christianity, I'm going to put emphasis on this because over the past thousand years, there's no polemic that has been more resonant and, and more, I would say, even resilient and durable than, than the Christian Jewish polemic. And it's resulted in deaths, whether we're Crusade, the Kansas of Sangre, or, or even uh, even if you think about uh, Montfort, Simon de Montfort's uh, uh, 
how do you say, a campaign in, in, in York. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been no stronger enemy than, than, than the Christianity. So to exclude that, it seems like a little bit of a... Well, I mean, the Middle Ages, when I talked about the Middle Ages, you know, I was talking about Passé? some... Uh, well, today, I, I don't think that that is really the source of the threat against um, Jews today. Uh, there are, in fact... You have to get off your horse. Yeah, get off your high horse, quote Barack Obama. The fact that, you know, there are actually a lot of, you know, Christian fundamentalists and evangelicals who think that all the Jews need to go back to Israel. There's an organization yes. which almost gave me a lot of money called Nefesh Ben Nefesh. Yeah, and, and they're actually very hardcore Zionists, so I'm not sure that, I believe, you know, in the Crusades and in the Middle Ages, this was a major story, but, you know, we have to get We've got to from that. <laughs> my question, that was, my, that was more of a comment. My question actually falls on the latest of Salim uh, issued in terms of the different types of anti-Semitism. I'm, I'm just going to have to side with Charles here, but the, the anti-Semitism that we're defining is an all-encompassing phenomenon, and, and there's no other term that can possibly capture that. But there's one issue here that you mentioned 400, um, 400 incidents that occurred, anti-Semitic incidents that occurred last year. And then you also, when you started mentioning Mera again, I said, okay, it's not just a, it's not just a Jewish problem. It's an anti-African, anti-Muslim, anti-border uh, phenomenon. I, I, first of all, I'd like you to possibly give some numbers for uh, attacks on Africans and and, uh, and Muslims and see how those compare. Maybe normalize I can tell you right now because I've looked at the numbers because I've had your question a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. They're much lower. Much, much lower? Much lower. I, see, I have them right here actually. You do? Yeah, I'll show you. It doesn't mean it's not a problem, but I don't think that's really In absolute terms or it is accounted for half the anti-racist anti attacks in France that's last year. That's correct. And you also have to look at the numbers. You know, you have 600,000 Jews in France. Mm -hmm. You have between six and seven million Muslims. Mm -hmm. And yet, there are many more, you know, 10 to 15 times more. And then who takes second place, the Africans or the Muslims? Uh, yeah, I mean, you have African Muslims, so too. Let's, so to say, uh, let's say, take Africans as a group, but let's consider the intersections as well. Who would, who would come? Uh, I think it's, much, yeah. The Africans probably, I think right? probably Muslim Africans. Muslim. They're a very much lower second place. I mean, you have discrimination against mm -hmm. Asians as well. Lots of much, much discrimination. Much. But, you know, I think it's skirting the point a little bit. I mean, I think there's a phenomenon that's happening right now in France that um, isn't taking the spotlight because we wanted to take the spotlight. The last thing I think mm -hmm. the Jewish community wants is to really be in the spotlight and be, win the trophy for no, the most depressed people in the world today, um, or one of them, in France at least. Uh, and unfortunately, they have won this trophy in France quite a few years in a row. So, you know, the numbers speak for themselves, and unfortunately, the Jews are coming out on top these days. But 800 racist incidents in all of France in, in one year? That sounds quite low. We probably have that many in Canada. Well, and, well, you're talking also about reported incidents. There's so yeah, many incidents. Yeah. I know a lot of people, my brother included, they get beaten up because of the police. They said if we count that as an anti-Semitic act, we explode mm -hmm. the records, and we don't want the records. So I don't want to record. There are many that, when many more. When you're not more. killed, you're not end up in a hospital. 
Down to four. Because it promotes it, it, it actually is good propaganda. Evidently, that that happened. That happened with the Charlie Hebdo as well. Yeah, they yeah. have to prove that it was actually an anti-Semitic attack, it's not just a normal attack. So it's complicated, the numbers are complicated, but the, the, the official numbers are much lower. Yes, 800, 800 racist attacks yeah. in a whole country like that sounds extraordinarily low. Yeah. Extraordinarily. It should be, it should be something like 10,000. I, I would, wouldn't be surprised at if least, that's that number. At least. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I've been subject to this stuff, I don't even know Jewish. I mean, in high school people would just throw pennies at me in the lunchroom. And, and you have to even define attack because you have verbal attacks, you have physical attacks, you have lots of violence. Attacks, usually, so there has to be some physical yeah, violence. That was, the, that was the, the most physical bit. I know someone in my high school who was beaten up for being Jewish. Like, this, there was like a fight. Um, there was like a physical attack. There was like a physical fight that I witnessed. Um, some guy just broke, like, broke the nose or something. In France? Or? No, in, in, in Montreal here. Um, I've, I've, I've heard of a whole bunch of stuff, it's crazy. You were a kid, but it's basically like, please, please assault me. I really want you to assault me. It's not bad, it's not. Any other comments or questions? I'm just, oh wait. <clears throat> I'm just wondering, there's like, the, I mean, you touched on it in a different way, but I'm wondering how we can combat it. There's this obfuscation. Um, <clears throat> like I heard on the BBC, there was, um, they were speaking to Muslim, and they said, well, Islam is religion of love, and I don't even believe that these acts were perpetrated by Muslims. Um, it was a setup, and like people believe this stuff. And yeah, they do. You know, there was something also on Facebook about, why should we have, these are just random criminals, and it has nothing to do with Islam, and if somebody is a criminal and they're Christian, should we hate Christianity? Like there's, there's like this very dumbed down like stu stupidity, but it's very prevalent and it's scary, and I think that's the enemy. Like you can't have a logical argument if people are so stupid, or is it just a cover for their latent and it's I don't, but I'm just like it's very frustrating for me to read these things, and it's like, where do you even begin? This is just yeah. Well, I think you begin with education. I mean, one of the first things I did uh, regarding these debates is I is I read through the you know <coughs> the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the Quran. Well, that way, at least you have you know you have the three major kind of monotheistic religions at your fingertips. I, I haven't memorized them, but. A lot of people are speaking about Islam without ever having read uh, the Quran. I think it's important uh, to have at least a theological base. Uh, if you want to speak about a religion, you should at least know the tenets of the religion. And it's surprisingly how many people don't even know the very base. Not a single surah. What's the percentage of all the, the attacks that were perpetrated? Can, can you uh, announce these numbers? Maybe yeah, it could be very I'll, I'll announce it. So, in the United States, religion and incidents of hate crime in the United States between 2001 and 2012, so by religion, um, the source is the FBI Uniform Crime Reports, 66.0% Jews, 3.4% Protestants, 4.5% Catholics, 12.1% Muslim, 9.7% other religions, 0.5% um, atheists or agnostic, and 3.8% multiple religions. 
And that's in the U.S. This is the U.S., but it's still, it's still, an, it's a pretty decent indication of how bad things have gone. If, it, if this is how what it is the source? FBI. FBI. So if if this is the U.S., I can imagine France is a lot worse. Because but it seems that the problem is numbers were actually the second place was by the end of the library. Yeah. The visible minorities would take. What's the source? Uh, well, by number of victims. Now we have a different percentage. Incidents. Percentage of incidents or percentage of victims would be also Any other questions or comments? I think we can close. I think what we're doing, what ISCAP is trying to do, is something that touches on your point is we're trying to educate people about these issues at different levels from the, you know, from the freshmen walking into their first intro seminar to um, the more seasoned uh, uh, academics that we, we have here today to the policymakers and the government. Um, we just came back from Washington and we're hoping to really be a kind of bridge between academia and um, the policymaking world and that we can, um, you know, fight this problem through knowledge and education. Uh, that's our goal. On behalf of Sam, who's a well-known artiste in Montreal and Istanbul, <laughs> Montreal, he gave uh, this to you as a token of your visit to Montreal. This is beautiful. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you yeah. so much. Thanks for the cold weather. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'll be a ski trip, but we'll take some room for later. Okay. So thank you for Play coming. The, the next of it is... March 2nd. March 2nd. Uh, so just, just as a footnote, Steve Worley is coming from... Uh, if, I, if I may... Just one second. Steve Murley will be here March the 2nd. He's amazing. He um, actually ran away from the United States as well, uh, dealing with the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States. And he has a website called the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, is it Muslim Brotherhood Watch? What's that? Steve Murley. Yeah, Muslim Brotherhood Watch. Muslim Brotherhood Watch. Human Rights Watch. So he'll be here. He's amazing. He's an expert on the Muslim Brotherhood. He'll be in McGill March the 2nd. And he's. Um, Somebody who's been monitoring this for a long time, you can go to his website, and he looks at uh, the Muslim Brotherhood movement in Europe and certainly yeah. the United States and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Steve Murdoch, yeah. 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 oh, yeah. I normally don't like the way I look at pictures. I want to tell you a little bit about, I've been living in France for on and off for over 15 years, <clears throat> and I'd like to tell you a little bit about my reflections on what's going on there and how it fits into larger larger picture. Um, and I, I'm going to focus, it's, it's a bit of an historical lecture, we're going to focus on exile, the idea of exodus, exile, um, and, and what that, what, what's happening today in France regarding the Jewish community in particular. Um, we're witnessing today, I believe, an event of historic proportions in France, which is the exile of its Jewish community. That doesn't mean a full exile. It's, right now it's a partial exile. Nobody knows exactly how far it's going to go, but the numbers are very significant already. Uh, last year alone, uh, 
approximately 7,000 of the 600,000 Jews in France left just for Israel. This is not including Jews that came here to Canada, to the United States, places where they might not necessarily get a visa, but Israel, they've certainly gone in large numbers. The year before it was at 3,400, so the, no the numbers have doubled, and they're set to double again according to Sharansky, head of the um, Jewish Agency, they're estimating between 15 and 20,000 are going to leave uh, this year alone. Um, <clears throat> and actually those estimates were before the attacks, so it might even be higher than that. Uh, and Israel, of course, is preparing for this massive aliyah, which of course many of you know what this means, this return to Israel. Um, this is the largest aliyah since, um, uh, this aliyah is, is, it's the first time that the French aliyah is larger than the American aliyah in history. Um, usually the Americans take the cake for the amount of Jews that are going to Israel and this time, for the first time, France has slid into first place. Um, <clears throat> so if this happens, I think we really need to understand what this means historically. Basically, the Jews of France who arrived more or less in 70 CE after the destruction of the Second Temple <laughs> will be gone. Um, if this occurs, the Jews of France who started one of the most important Talmudic schools to Rashi will have left. The Jews of France who gave birth to Alfred Dreyfus, who refused to be wrongly accused, and in turn, as we know, inspired Herzl's vision of Zionism, will have left. The largest Jewish community in Europe will have left Professor, Europe. Yes? Interrupt. The, uh, the history of the Jews of France actually goes much further back. Yeah, we're going to go, we're going to go all the way back. Let's, let's save it to the end. We're going to go, I promise you, in fact, this is an historic lecture. So we're going to go all the way back to the Middle Ages very soon. No, so no, no. Disappointed. Yeah. Long, oh, you mean, you mean in France? In France, when Julius Caesar, who was also a Ohed Yisrael, as we say, when he conducted his campaigns in Gaul, which yeah. wasn't the problem, he was astonished to find <laughs> a huge, large Jewish community in mm -hmm. Gaul. And yes, and we're going to talk about that. To move onward, after the attacks in January, this issue, because I want to talk a lot about the contemporary context as well. In fact, I want to focus on not Gaul, but on what's happening now today. But in order to do that, we have to understand a little bit about what's, what happened in the past. We're not going to go as far back as Julius Caesar, uh, but we will talk a little bit about the Middle Ages. Um, the January attacks have brought some dialogue into, um, about the exile into sig a significant debate, but it's unclear whether this is a kind of knee-jerk reaction or it's going to result in a permanent change in France. Um, before the attacks, after 7,000 Jews left in one year alone, the nation of Le Droit de l'Homme, which publicly admitted in 1995, under Chirac, an inescapable guilt towards collaboration with the Nazis was silent, more or less, regarding this issue. I live there, I watch the news, I talk with people, I'm involved in, you know, in politics and social issues, 
there was a, a large silence before the attacks. Even now, it's already dying down again. There were no special government programs, really, that were created to help protect the Jewish community beyond its own laws, and I'll talk a little bit about why <clears throat> that's so. Um, and the, there was no real uproar. The non-Jews didn't you know, accuse the Jews of lack of patriotism, and the Jews didn't create some scandalous jacuzzi-like drama and leave you know, in a huff and a puff. There was a, lot of, there was a relative silence <coughs> regarding this exile, which struck me very much so, given the history of exile in, in France and the emancipation of, of Jews and, and ultimate um, one would one thought victory of, 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 of rights, human rights in France among all different types of communities. Um, so in a sense the Jewish community is leaving France and France is letting them go routinely as, a, as if they have done so before because in fact they have done so before at least two times before. This is the third exile. Now when I say the third exile we're going to start with the Middle Ages quickly. Uh, we're just going to scan over it. But basically, during the Middle Ages, there were a series of exiles in France. Um, many of them were based on classic injustices, forced conversions, blood libel, usury was a big one. Um, and goods were seized, property was stolen, and often murders uh, were, were committed. Um, the major exiles happened in 1009. Robert the Pious was one of the few kings who actually did it in the name of the church and forced either conversion or death. But what ultimately sealed the fate of the Jews, I believe, in the Middle Ages was the deaths of the kingdom. Um, that's what sealed the fate because, as we know, Jews were forced to be, they didn't have a lot of choices regarding profession, so money lending was one of the few professions that they were able to legally um, exercise and so they had uh, they were expelled often to win favors for forgiving debt and things like that um, in 1181 Philip Augustus arrested seized and expelled almost every single Jew out of the kingdom um, the other major expulsion was in 1308, uh, 1306, Philip the Fair, Philippe le Juste, which is of course a very ironic name. Um, he had a kind of bureau very bureaucratic centralized government in France, which could perhaps remind us a little bit of the Parti Socialiste today, um, because, which is also very centralized bureaucratic and wasted a lot of money, I believe. But he, he ultimately had a government which was going bankrupt because because of the way it was structured, and he was, um, as a result, uh, started confiscating, auctioning off Jewish goods, arresting, imprisoning, and exiling Jews. They were, out to, they were allowed to return in 1315, but were ultimately expelled again under Charles VI in 1394. So um, uh, the Jews of the Middle Ages were, their history was a history of, of many expulsions, or in some cases, major expulsions. There's also the Jews of the Provence, which was a whole separate, uh, which is not part of the kingdom, and they suffered the same fate of expulsion in 1498, um, which was enforced in 1500, and they were expelled. So that was the first, when I talk about the three exiles, that was the first major one that um, I think is very significant. The second one was, of course, World War II. Now, remember, 1789-1790, Jews, after the French Revolution, were given full citizenship rights. 
They were the first in Europe to, to gain this. So this was a historic uh, victory for, for Jews and, you know, generally would, could be perceived as a very good sign. Uh, Anti-Semitism anti persisted, but, you know, um, after the Dreyfus Affair and, um, the, you know, in, in, in the winning of, of citizenship uh, after the revolution, there seemed to be an idea that the exiles of the Middle Ages were something of the past, that this was over. <clears throat> now, the Jews during the World War II were very patriotic citizens. They were actually enlisting much higher numbers than even uh, French citizens, including foreign, the foreign Jews, which are important to mention because those are the ones that were ultimately, um, that were ultimately ex exiled. <clears throat> Put, um, put on trains to, um, eventually, they were originally put in internment camps and eventually uh, put on trains to uh, the concentration camps in Poland. Now, just very briefly, you know, Marshal Petain in June 22, 1940 signed an armistice after France was invaded only in May, June of 1940, so it didn't last very long. Um, so they folded relatively quickly and quickly started, um, um, they originally, they, they very quickly repealed the Marshall Law Act, which punished, def which punished defamation in the press, uh, giving rise to the worst forms of anti-Semitism. In October the same year, on its own initiative, the Vichy government enacted the Statut des Juifs, which defined Jews by race, instituting widespread discriminatory measures, including barring Jews from uh, professions and forcing them to register and all that stuff. So, and then, of course, that same month, as we know, they were, all the foreign Jews that they could get were interned. Uh, so in many cases, uh, my, my main point is that the Vichy authorities actually surpassed the demands of the Germans. Um, they were um, often, uh, they, they were often uh, exceeding the demands. They sent more Jews than the Germans could even process once they started sending them to the camps. And in total, just so we don't forget the numbers in France, around 75,720 Jews were deported and only 2,500 came back. So this was the second major exile. Now the third exile <coughs> is very different from the first exile, which is very different from the second exile. This exile is a you can say semi-voluntary exile. I don't want to use the word completely voluntary because some Jews who wear kippahs on their heads and walk around Paris or other cities in France don't feel that their decision is fully uh, voluntary. Um, just a quick anecdote. When I was in a synagogue in my own hometown, <coughs> I mean adopted hometown in France, um, the, the president of the community on Yom Kippur Sat, you know, stood up and he said, look, I'm going to be very brief. I have two messages for you. The first is, and this is, you know, a spiritual holiday, and he didn't talk about spirituality or even about uh, Judaism per se. He simply said two things. He said, uh, <coughs> the security situation is very bad. Make sure you walk around in groups and pairs and watch your back, basically. And the second was, learn Hebrew. Uh, not for when we leave, but for, not for if we leave, but for when. So I was with a Swiss friend who was quite shocked. He said in Switzerland this would never, this would be offensive. But here this was basically a decision that was made. Um, and that's, that's a, a huge, I think that's a huge, um, that's a huge thing that we have to realize that many 
have made this decision to leave already. They're just preparing. Now they're in the preparation stage. In my <coughs> town where I live, there's something like 20 different ulpan courses all over the place. And it's only maybe 15% Jewish. So there is a huge mobilization, and I, you know, and Israel is preparing for this. Now, there are two sources to the anti-Semitism in France. Um, I'm going to go over them very briefly. Uh, the first is young, disaffected youth. They're largely Muslim youth. They're largely in the suburbs of Paris and other major cities, and they've adopted a kind of political Islam or Islamism. You know, there's a lot of argument about. We're not going to get too semantic tonight. I hope, because um, <clears throat> I'd prefer. To, yes, it's Canada. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. So, I'm not used to being politically correct as in Canada, because even in France, you can't. Um, you can basically say uh, what you, what you want. But uh, I, I am American by origin, so I'm I'm trained in some of the, you know, some of the more politically correct environments. <clears throat> Uh, in the United States. Uh, but anyhow, so we have the, the radical Islamists on the one hand, and on the other, a mix of the extreme left with the extreme right with a little dash of radical Islam to kind of make it spicy and interesting. And that's Dieudonné, which is a name I can't even pronounce because his name means, you know, God-given. Yeah. So my friends and I call him Diabdoné instead of Dieudonné. <laughs> So Diabdoné says he's a kind of comedian, but he, I, you know, he's really a kind of racist that... Kind of? Kind of, yeah. More than kind of. So he mocks the Football Shoah. Like. What's that? The football is like. Yeah. Um, he's, you know, very controversial figure in, in France today. He has tens of thousands of followers, social media, website. He, of course, popularized the, you know, reverse Nazi salute, which calls the Kennel. And is influenced by a guy by the name of Alain Soret, who was a Marxist and then became... He was a communist, and then he was—he turned to the far right. Whatever you know was the most extreme, he kind of embraced. Um, and it's important to note that he is involved in politics. He did establish a political party, Yudoné, called the Equality and Reconciliation. Um, and he is um, a convert to Islam, who identifies with the radical version of Islam. In a 2011 interview, which I'd be happy to send anyone here. He calls on French Christians to convert to Islam. So it's important to understand where he's coming from. No one can deny these things because uh, he said them himself. Uh, and um, in terms of the French support of Dieudonné, there was a survey on January 8th, so just last month, uh, that said around 16% of French have a favorable opinion of him. So if you do the math, that's that would turn out to be around 10 million people. Um, so it, within the Jewish community, basically, there's a lot of tension right now. And there's a kind of debate that's emerging as to what, <coughs> what to do. You have, on the one hand, the CRIF, uh, which is one of the main Jewish organizations, and the new head rabbi of France who said, quote, France is our language, our dream, our hope for the future. So they're basically saying, stick around, let's see what happens, things might get better. Um, okay, that was a very abbreviated uh, version of the French view, but they have invested in the community and they want the community to try to tough it out and see if things could change. And then you have Israelis like Netanyahu, who said, quote, to all the Jews of France, all the Jews of Europe, I would like to say that Israel is not just the place in whose direction you pray, the state of Israel is your home. 
and this became a bit controversial. Uh, Hollande didn't really like this, and so on. So, you know, when Jews say next year in Jerusalem, for many French Jews, they really mean this, uh, literally, this year. And, you know, Netanyahu and Lieberman and Moshe Yalon, they're all waiting with open arms, basically. So, uh, this is the dilemma, the crossroad that the Jewish community is at right now in France. And I think if we zoom out a little and just think about the decision of a French Jew to leave France and move to Israel, it's really quite astounding. Because when you think about it, you look at France, I'm a, I call myself now a recovering Francophile. Um, <clears throat> I've been there for many years and you know, I love the country, but I also have a lot of misgivings, of course. If you look at France, a country, a, you know, a relatively wealthy country, six you know, weeks of vacation per year, fine cuisine, beautiful 19th century architecture uh, in Paris and other cities. Um, you know, the virtues of France, you weigh those, and um, you know, the, the lifestyle that, that France can afford versus Israel, which is a miraculous country, but surrounded by uh, countries, uh, enemies that want to destroy it, uh, has serious economic problems, fiercely competitive economy, and um, you know, military obligations are, you know, military, uh, mandatory inscription in the military for men and women. Um, it's, uh, it's, 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 I think, astounding that so many French are leaving. There must be something spiritual and physical that's going on to the French community that enables them to give all of that up and, move, you know, the free health care, the free education, the six weeks, the whole package and move to a country where life is, uh, let's say, if any of you have ever tried to build a life there, not, not so easy to build a life there, despite the miraculous nature of the country. And I think it's ironic that the country that, you know, produced Montesquieu, created separation of powers, the declaration of the droit d'homme, and laid the foundation of human rights, is now losing uh, one of its most ancient communities. Um, so why, you know, uh, the, the final part of my talk, we'll talk about why, why this is happening, uh, what are the reasons, the explanations for why, why, the, why Jews are leaving France. And I think it's an, you know, I, I just spoke to someone in physics, we have kind of interdisciplinary crowd here, and that's a good thing because this is really an interdisciplinary uh, topic. Um, I think, I see historical, political, sociological, psychological, and philosophic reasons for why this is happening. And I'll just briefly tell you a few of my highlights, and then you can tell me <coughs> if you agree or if you think um, it's completely um, nuts what I'm saying. Uh, historically, you have to understand that France right now is around 70% Sephardic. Uh, they're arriving from you know, Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, a lot of them in the 1950s, and um, a lot of them are fleeing, um, already fled countries that um, became inhospitable to them. My own family on my brother's side is Tunisian, and they left a very comfortable life in Tunisia to build um, to, a, uh, to, a, to a life in Salcelle and living in a kind of what's called the Ashalem, which is a kind of almost like a project. Um, it's not the same. Uh, and they, you know, they're constantly talking about their life in Tunisia, that they, they had wealthy, you know, they were wealthy, they had a marble factory. So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of emphasis, I think, these days on that 
exile, <coughs> the exile of the Jewish Sephardim from North Africa to something that's very important, I think, to study and to understand. I don't want to go into all the details, but we know in Tunisia they fled after the Six-Day War, in Morocco as well, in, in, in Algeria. A lot of these countries, they fled after different events, especially that happened within Israel. And I believe there's a kind of historic trauma because of Max exile and because of loss of property. And a lot of these people um, are seeing the same things happening again in France. So they're living in Salcelle and the northern suburbs where they've become now a minority. And they're seeing that history is uh, repeating itself uh, once again. Um, and they're also looking at Israel, especially the young types, and they're seeing this startup nation. They're seeing, you know, they're strongly Zionistic, most of the, the vast majority of Sephardim in uh, Israel, I'm sorry, in France. And so they, they have a spiritual attachment to Israel. And then, of course, you have the Ashkenazi, which around 20, 25%, <clears throat> something like this, who, of course, also carry a trauma from World War II. And, um, you know, in Paris and many other French cities, they, I think they've done a decent job at memorializing this, this genocide um, <clears throat> during World War II. And so, you know, you live within this memory. And then, um, and then when you see, uh, you know, Jews, uh, you know, over 400 uh, anti-Semitic acts um, last year alone, um, I think that people um, have a kind of collective memory that they've helped keep alive through all of these efforts, and they see history repeating itself on a different scale, granted, in a different way, granted, but nonetheless, um, they feel uh, you cannot today walk around with a keep on your head in Paris, and that's something that um, would have probably been inconceivable uh, if you were to tell someone who had never really um, lived in France uh, before, so I think that this is a major, a major shift. Now, politically, uh, the 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 issue is that the French have a kind of a republican model. It's very different from the multiculturalist model that uh, have been parts of Canada and the U.S. Um, it's not a salad bowl or a melting pot. I like to compare it more like a giant camembert because <laughs> it's basically the same ingredient. You're either French or you're nothing, and you know, my analogy is this, you know, Camembert is, is starting to stink a little bit. It's getting expired, perhaps. Um, this, is, this, is, this is an issue, it's a debate when the expiration date is, but there's something stinky going on. Um, and uh, what is collapsing exactly within this Republican model? Um, remember, you know, for France declared itself in 1905 as a laic, as a secular country, so right away religion is kind of pushed into the private sphere. Um, and um, uh, there's, so there's not, um, when there are problems uh, taxed against Jews and things like that, <coughs> the French look at this as not an attack against the community, but an attack against a citizen, a French citizen. And so there hasn't been really concerted efforts to, um, to you know, customize to, to the community uh, as a whole. They're also very soft judicial penalties in France, um, you know, they don't, Obviously, there's no death penalty, which is great, but there's no um, life in prison. It's really 40 years maximum, and they're often radicalized in prison. There are also many intelligence flaws, which um, we can go into later if you're really interested. Since I have a background in counterterrorism, I can tell you what happened with Kulabali and um, 
in the Kwachi, the Kwachi brothers, if you're interested. Um, and generally, there's a, as a result of this, there's an indifference among many non-French, uh, non-Jewish French, to um, to the plight of Jews in France. And this is, I think, illustrated with the many different incidents that happened over the years, from Ilan Halimi to uh, the incident in Toulouse and um, by Mohammed, you know, Mohammed Marat. These were all um, terrorist attacks where. People uh, didn't rise up and say, je suis Elan, je suis Miriam, je suis Rabbi Sander. Uh, these were incidents that basically came and went, and there were no major concerted rallies like what we saw in early January to um, side and defend um, you know, their, their Jewish um, you know, brothers and sisters and fellow citizens. Um, so, the final, uh, the final set of reasons or causes, which I think we have to remember are sociological reasons. Uh, what are the reasons why the French feel more at home in Israel than in France? Um, I think one of the main reasons is that simply Jewish identity in France today is becoming impossible. And I use the word identity purposefully. That's a very abstract word. But when you look at anyone from a religious Jew who wears a kippah to a completely secular Zionist type Jew, um, in both instances, it's almost um, inconceivable that you can um, go out in public and have your views be respected by your fellow, your fellow citizens and visitors. Uh, so this is, this is a major problem. Uh, I also think that the, especially the younger types look at Israel as a kind of startup nation and see France, which is a highly regulated economy, as no longer really offering the kinds of economic opportunities. Um, there's also two other final reasons, and they're sociological reasons. One is that um, many of the radicals in France look at Jews as kind of these very wealthy, powerful types an old stereotype which persists in France today. The couple that was attacked, uh, you probably heard in Crete, um, there was a couple that was attacked, their apartment was broken into, they, they got their bank cards, and they didn't really get much money out of them because Crete is not the wealthiest neighborhood, and their bank accounts didn't really have much, but they were somehow under the assumption that because they had a mezuzah on their door that these people must be loaded. Um, and it's this ancient stereotype, Ilan Halimi too, they were trying to they said, of course, they were seething anti-Semites, but they were also interested in ransom money because they thought the Jewish community, they called the rabbi, they were trying to extort money out of the Jewish community. They thought, oh, you know, these are very wealthy people. And this, of course, leads to, this, this stereotype leads to, and there's actually a, a very poor Jewish community in large parts of France, so it's the total opposite. I mean, there are wealthy Jews as well, but there are entire northern suburbs that are extremely poor. Um, this leads to a kind of conspiracy theory which leads to a kind of hate. And I don't think any lecture about this would be appropriate without a little, a little Jewish humor. So I'll tell you a very quick joke illustrating this point. Uh, a guy, Jewish guy, is reading a newspaper, this Arabic newspaper every day. Every day he's reading the same Arabic newspaper and his friend comes up to him and says, you know, Moisha, why are you reading this Arabic newspaper every day? Why don't you read Haaretz or Times of Israel or some 
Israeli newspaper. Wouldn't that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't that be, interest you more? And he said, no, absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. When I read, you know, Haaretz and Times of Israel, I see the economy stinks, you know, our politicians are corrupt, uh, we're being, you know, surrounded by enemies, we're, we're being attacked left and right. But when I read, you know, the Arabic newspaper, I see that, you know, we're, we're, we're wealthy, we're taking over the banks, we're taking over the sciences, we're taking over basically everything, we're getting money, and it kind of, you know, lifts my morale a little bit. <laughs> so this is the kind of stereotype that is playing in some radical elements in France, which has really turned into violence, pure, raw violence against Jews who, um, who are not necessarily uh, living up to these, these stereotypes. Uh, and then finally, I think there's a general malaise in France, and it's really the only word abstract enough to describe what I want to say, because there's a political stagnation. Remember, Hollande had only 18% before the attacks. It was the lowest public approval rating in French history after the attacks for some reason which uh, I still don't understand he shot up to 40% and now it's going back down I mean there are reasons uh, obviously uh, but um, people are generally disillusioned politically economically there's a lot of stagnation and socially there's a lot of tension so for these reasons Jews feel that not just as Jews but as kind of people who are trying to carve out lives, comfortable kind of, you know, lives for themselves that Israel might have, um, have, Israel might have a little bit more opportunity for them. So there are spiritual reasons that they move there and there are even, uh, there are many other reasons. So just to conclude, I just want to make a very few, very, one or two very brief um, concluding remarks. I think that this exile, this third exile, is a kind of silent exile. Um, people are going um, to build their lives. They're focused, uh, maybe one of the reasons why it's silent is because the Jews are focused more on building their lives in Israel, and the French are focused more on solving the social, economic, and political problems that they're dealing with back at home and really don't care very much. Um, and I think that this also overlooks a kind of thousand pound gorilla sitting in the corner of the room, which is the, that this exile indicates a fundamental social and political constructs which have been built in modernity, which uh, separate Jews from the situation in the Middle Ages, which are collapsing. And I'm not saying that the Jews are regressing back to the Middle Ages, but the fact that there's an exile in the 21st century means that there's certain fundamental things in France that simply have not changed. Um, it's an an implicit and perhaps explicit avowal that republicanism in France, the hard-won victory of the French Revolution where citizens' rights were supposed to finally trump over other forms of identity, is collapsing. Thank you.